2: New phishing techniques, arrests in the Genesis market case, APT-43's archipelago, Russia's turn in the Security Council chair immediately becomes an occasion for disinformation. Our guest is Nick Tosek from Swimlane to discuss supply chain attack trends. Tim Starks from The Washington Post has the latest on the DOJ's attempts to disrupt cybercrime. And make robo-love, not robo-war. Latest on nuisance-level hacktivism in the interest of Ukraine. From the Cyberwire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your Cyberwire summary for Thursday, April 6, 2023. Today released a report detailing a newly identified phishing campaign that utilizes YouTube attribution links and a CAPTCHA in order to fly under the radar. The victims receive a fake email alerting them that their Microsoft 365 password has expired. In reality, the email comes from a hacker that utilizes display name spoofing in order to feign legitimacy. The email contains Microsoft's logo and branding, and provides a button with a link for the user to keep their same password. The link redirects to a YouTube URL and later a page with a Cloudflare captcha. Once the captcha is completed, the user will be redirected to a phishing page that auto-populates the email address of the user and provides a space to enter a password. Both YouTube and Cloudflare are commonly whitelisted, so using these URLs allows for the bypassing of much security software as well as email gateways. Vade advises good cyber hygiene and cautiousness around emails that ask for account access or credentials. Europol yesterday reported that Tuesday's seizure of the Genesis market was a combined operation involving 17 countries. 119 people were arrested, 208 properties were searched— and a reported 97 knock-and-talk measures took place. This combined effort was spearheaded by the U.S. FBI and the Dutch National Police. The DOJ yesterday disclosed that law enforcement had seized 11 domain names that were in support of the Genesis market infrastructure. A formerly little-noted cybercrime group, ABT-43, was described by Mandiant in a report last week. The threat actor was also shown to have ties to the Democratic People's Republic of Korea. Mandiant explains that after five years of tracking the activities of APT-43, they can attribute the group to the DPRK because their collection priorities align with the mission of the Reconnaissance General Bureau, North Korea's main foreign intelligence service. Mandiant also highlights how APT-43 acquires and launders stolen cryptocurrency, to fund its own espionage operations. This differs from other DPRK cyber threat actors who seem to funnel cryptocurrency to fund the DPRK government as a whole. Google released a follow-up report on the 5th of April which focused on that subset of APT43's activities Google calls archipelago. Google notes that it observed the group target individuals with expertise in North Korea policy issues— such as sanctions, human rights, and non-proliferation issues. Google goes on to expose how Archipelago conducts its phishing and various malware operations, explaining, Archipelago invests time and effort to build rapport with targets, often corresponding with them by email over several days or weeks before finally sending a malicious link or file. Google also notes, For several years, Archipelago focused on conducting traditional credential phishing campaigns. More recently, TAG has observed Archipelago incorporate malware into more of their operations. To protect their malware from AV scanning, Archipelago commonly password-protects their malware and shares the password with recipients in a phishing email. It's Russia's turn to chair the United Nations Security Council— and it used its first week in that role to convene a meeting to share its own view of the widespread abduction of Ukrainian children. It featured a video presentation by the director of Russia's Child Protection Agency, Maria Lova Belova, presently wanted by the International Criminal Court for war crimes involving the kidnapped children. Ms. Lovova Belova said she welcomed the opportunity to dispel the fakes and show the opposite side. She added that Russia did not recognize the jurisdiction of the International Criminal Court and claimed that Russia's custody of the children was protective and that Moscow stands ready to help reunite the children with their families. Criticism of Russian policy, she said, amounted to lies designed to slander Russia. The New York Times quotes her as saying, We have no doubt that this is a campaign to discredit our country, and attempts to conceal their irresponsible actions about children. Several Western members of the Council walked out on the presentation, returning once it was over to denounce Russian disinformation. It seems likely that Russia's month in the chair will be devoted to more such tendentious propaganda, and putting a wanted alleged war criminal out there as your spokeswoman shows a lot of brass, and not in a good way either. And finally, in a rare filing from our teledildonics desk, we hear that the Ukrainian hacktivist group Cyber Resistance took control of an AliExpress account organized by the Russian blogger Mikhail Lukin to solicit donations for Russian forces. Numerama reports that the hacktivists then used the pirated account to spend about 23,000 euros on erotic novelties. Inform Napalm explained the move, stating, The hacktivists of cyber resistance punished Z-volunteer Mikhail Lukin. They hacked his email and charged $25,000 worth of adult toys to his card, which is linked to AliExpress. He planned to spend the money to buy drones for the Russian army. The hacktivists themselves bragged in their own Telegram channel, posting, Instead of drones... Misha will now have truckloads of other things useful to every Russian to the occupiers, which we ordered and paid for with his card on AliExpress. The original is clear on what the hacktivist invoiced for Mr. Lukin's card, but we're a family show, so we've redacted that part. But really, folks, AliExpress is Alibaba's e-commerce service, and apparently the hacktivist universe is like middle school. Alas... First Post says that Mr. Lucan attempted to return the items, but found that all sales were final, although some other sources say Mr. Lucan did get some money back. Apparently, he's stuck with a truckload of saucy marital aids, which he'll now just have to deliver to the front. In any case, he counter boasted to the cyber resistance that he'll just resell them to Russians who want to buy such novelties, and that he'll do so at a 300% profit, all going to raise more money for russia's cause we hate to rain on mr lucan's parade but we have it on good authority that such reselling schemes no longer work very well whatever the dropship gurus may have told him on tiktok in any case he must have a lot of inventory we hesitate to even speculate how many romantic appliances 23000 euros will fetch nowadays but we're betting that it's what financial experts would call a lot a whole lot. Coming up after the break, Nick Tosek from Swimlane discusses supply chain attack trends. Tim Starks from The Washington Post has the latest on the DOJ's attempts to disrupt cybercrime. Stay with us. The U.S. federal government has taken a leading role in the reduction of supply chain attacks through the efforts of CISA and other supporting agencies. Despite the effort, reports indicate that supply chain attacks are on the rise. For more on this, I spoke with Nick Tosek, lead security automation architect at security firm Swimlane.
1: As an industry, supply chain attacks have been increasing steadily. I shouldn't say steadily, I should say exponentially, actually, year over year. This has been an increasing problem in scope and severity. Uh in 2021 it was something over 600% year over year increase in supply chain attacks uh against the open source community and then uh last year in 2022 that number jumped up to like 750% year over year increase in open source supply chain attacks. So a lot of these attacks uh are going after a pretty broad swath of the industry, right? It's not just the federal government. But the feds are a pretty huge attack surface with uh, a lot of resources devoted to trying to keep them safe and a lot of really uh, juicy targets for all kinds of malicious actors who might be interested in breaking into a system. So I guess the the short answer to that is that the, uh, the supply chain attack problem is not going away. It's increasing exponentially, and the federal government remains a primary target for actors who are using this uh, rapidly increasing attack vector to perform their malicious activities.
2: And what have we seen so far in terms of the federal government's response to this? What what sort of uh, defenses and protections have they put in
1: place? So as far as the federal government's responses uh, are concerned, we've seen a lot in the last couple of years from the Biden administration, which has been really refreshing to see. In regards to mandatory reporting requirements for various industries outside of just the most critical infrastructure, they just signed a new document called the National Cybersecurity Strategy, which differs a lot from previous iterations of this document that we've seen from every administration prior In two ways, one of which is that it authorizes U.S. defense, intelligence, and law enforcement agencies to go more on the offensive against malicious actors to attempt to disrupt their activities, retaliate for cyber attacks, and prevent cyber attacks. And it also uh, includes more ample reporting requirements for industries and cybersecurity events inside the United States. For a long time, many of us in the industry have been asking for greater transparency and greater sharing of information to try to raise the tide for all organizations who are facing cybersecurity threats. But this is really a concrete step with these reporting requirements to make uh, sure that organizations are actually sharing what information they can safely uh, with a greater uh, intelligence community to help kind of shore up everybody's defenses at once. Um, and that's a really important message uh, in the age of supply chain attacks because as we saw with solar winds for example one compromised vendor can cause a, an enormous problem for the federal government um, cause untold amounts of damages and frankly make themselves almost inextricable from networks once they've gained a really strong foothold uh, you know it can take millions or potentially even billions of dollars to extract bad actors from some of these federal agencies once they've gotten a, a really deep toehold in.
2: What are some of your insights when it comes to this? What are some of the things that that you and your colleagues there at Swimlane would recommend to government agencies in in terms of getting on top of this?
1: So there's a few things. Um, Supply chain attacks are notoriously difficult to prevent um, because you don't control the entire supply chain. The best you can do is engage with vendors you trust, uh, make sure that they're following uh, security controls like SOC 2 compliance. Uh, make sure that they're regularly audited to make sure that their cybersecurity posture is as good as it can be. But with supply chain attacks, and especially supply chain attacks against the open source community, these can have really huge ripple effects when compromises do occur to a code base. So what we recommend is leveraging security automation to allow you to respond more quickly when events do occur. This can be From the worst-case scenario, an actual vendor is compromised and your environment has been breached and you need to shut down large swaths of your network or quarantine critical resources or disable a large number of compromised user accounts at once. This could also be something like supply chain attack does occur against a vendor doing the documentation to decide whether or not you're affected by monitoring your critical assets and patching your critical assets. All of these actions can really be greatly assisted in speed and accuracy by security automation. So that's probably the primary thing I would say um, as far as being able to rapidly respond when a supply chain event does occur. And that doesn't necessarily have to be a SOAR platform. Of course, Swivelane is a SOAR vendor, so that's what we sell, but this can be homebrew automation as well. Uh, a lot of organizations have been incredibly successful with developing homebrew autom- automation solutions. These high-code approaches tend to be very hands-on, take a lot of time and developer expertise, but they're, they can be really, really critically fit into your environment to make sure that you have exactly what you need for your organization. So there's a whole different conversation about what kind of products that you could get into, but I think the most effective line to go into to uh, mitigate supply chain attacks when they do occur is in the automation arena.
2: Does the U.S. government, you know, with their massive purchasing power, is this an opportunity for them to really take a leadership role in kind of setting the standard for what's expected with supply chains?
1: Absolutely. Um, The government, like you said, has an enormous amount of purchasing power and thereby an enormous amount of influence on the entire cybersecurity market as a whole. Besides being aggressive leaders in best cybersecurity practices, they should also continue to exert pressure on cybersecurity vendors to increase their own security postures. The open source community is a little bit trickier because anybody can contribute to it, and a lot of this work is done uh, pretty pro bono. Um, But when you're dealing with vendors, uh, making sure that they're compliant with the latest security standards, uh, their auditing procedures... Uh, and making sure that they're regularly validating their code base to make sure that they're not the victims of uh, open source supply chain attacks that may have occurred. That's Nick Tosek
2: from Swim Lane. And joining me once again is Tim Starks. He is the author of the Cybersecurity 202 at the Washington Post. Tim, always great to welcome you back. Yeah, thanks. So uh, I want to touch with you today on, uh, first of all, Operation Cookie Monster, which I have to say, as a a lifelong Muppets fan, uh, really grabbed my attention and my affection in their naming. Uh, But
0: beyond my interest in it, um, interesting move here from the FBI in terms of takedowns. Yeah, I'm always. I also like you. I'm fascinated by the naming conventions of some of these things. I remember once writing an article about how they named military operations. Uh, yeah, this is a another big uh, takedown in just the last several weeks of these kinds of uh, underground cybercriminal marketplaces. Uh, Genesis was uh, specializing in access brokerage, uh, being able to give people usernames, passwords, other ways to log into accounts that they'd stolen, and this was another really, really big market that they've, that they've taken down. In today's Cybersecurity
2: 202 at The Post, uh, you have an interview with Lisa Monaco, who's Deputy
0: Attorney General. Uh, take us through that interview. I was at the uh, Aspen Verify conference last week and had uh, requested a, a chance to speak with her, and um, it looked like we were going to arrange it, and then something happened uh, at the Justice Department that was kind of big. I had some, some ex-president, some guy, Got arrested I think or I've heard of that. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we had to delay things until today, and uh, we had a nice chat. I uh, I thought she she gave a, f- a few newsy nuggets there. It wasn't just a generalized perspective, but she also did talk about philosophy. And and because of the news of the of Genesis Market, that's where we started things. She had talked about this as exemplifying a twist or evolution in the way they've been doing disruptive operations. Mm-hmm. You know, they, there's the there's the traditional, of course, law enforcement arrest kind of operations that we're used to in cyber or at least, you know, indictments uh, and charges filed, but, but sometimes not arrested. In this case, uh, they didn't just uh, arrest people. They did arrest people. They also arrested people in the United States. They uh, seized domains. They shut down the website. They shut down the entire uh, marketplace, essentially. And the reason she said this was a, a variant was because of that access broker part. If you look at some of the other markets they've taken down. They've been uh, things like you know people selling packets packets of information, things like just uh, credit card numbers or raw data on on people. This was a little different in that sense. And then we we had a broader talk about how they do these disruptions and, and what they mean. I had been wondering for a while how do they decide when to do this kind of operation as opposed to doing something else. You know, the, mm. there was the situation with Kaseya a couple of years back. You, you know, people who are who are deep into this will remember where. The FBI got in a little bit of controversy with, uh, with, with, the, with the Capitol Hill over the fact that, that as you know, my colleagues uh, Ellen Nakashima and, and another reporter uh, reported, had, had held on to some information about what was going with Kaseya and had not sent out the decryption keys that they had access to uh, right away. And that made me wonder, well, when do they decide to do these kinds of things versus when they don't? And what she said is there's no hard and fast rule. Uh it is a, a thing where she she has let everybody know in the department be looking for opportunities to do this.
2: Yeah, th- I thought that was uh interesting, the the focus on just dis- the, the, the opportunism of looking for disruption. I, I thought was an interesting insight. Um you also touched on TikTok and the uh the restrict act, which is certainly um controversial in many ways. Uh I, I, I have to say that the answer she gave you on the restrict act was a little non-satisfying
0: to me how, how did you feel about it <laughs> yeah I mean backing up just slightly to to what you said before the before the question um yeah you know one of the things that that seems to have uh really triggered this let's let's be opportunistic is ransomware mm-hmm. and and the 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 harm that it's caused uh to the United States over the years and, and you know they've seen to make some progress on that that you know people have praised the law enforcement operations that are focused on disruption um but but as we you know put in the in the newsletter a couple weeks ago or actually just last week people aren't entirely sure that's going to be a lasting uh, change so we'll see we'll see how that goes the um the answer was interesting to me in this way there there are these first amendment concerns about whether um if the United States were to ban TikTok whether that would be a violation of the first amendment it's a platform right. that people use to communicate, and uh, you know, the civil libertarians, uh, Senator Rand Paul. So you know, he certainly would consider himself a libertarian, but we're talking about, in some cases, a, a range of ideological perspectives because he is more conservative than your traditional what we think of as a civil libertarian. What was slightly interesting about that answer was um, she thinks that the restrict act puts them on stronger legal footing if there is any action taken. This is a case where the the people who are doing the review of TikTok. The Committee on the Foreign Investment in the United States is extremely secretive. They always meet behind closed doors. Getting a little bit of information about what they're doing is always a lot for them. <laughs> uh, they, I, had a, I had asked her several questions about TikTok, and that was the only one she even came close to answering. So, yeah, I hear you on unsatisfying. I think everybody is getting impatient. And by everybody, I mean uh, TikTok. I mean probably other people in the federal government. I think probably Capitol Hill. This, this negotiation has been going on for years now. When are we going to be a resolution for this? And uh, I, I sense your frustration, and I share it a little bit. Just as a reporter, like I would really like to know what's going to happen here. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I suppose I mean not
2: satisfying, but also not surprising that that uh, it would be a kind of a beige answer.
0: Yeah, it would. It would. You know, the other questions I asked her were maybe a little bit more specific, and maybe that's why mm. she didn't answer them. I was, you know, I was really being careful to. I'd seen her talk about. Uh, TikTok at the conference I just mentioned, so I knew that I knew what she wasn't going to want to talk about. But I tried to phrase things in a way that I thought would just be innocuous enough that she would answer them, or that they would right. be, or that they would be not making her touch on the specifics of the case. Uh, but I, but she, she was pretty uh, consistent on staying on that, on that line of thinking. And I, I under, like you said, unsurprising. I understand why. But it's also, I wish, I wish they were talking more about this. I wish we knew more about what was happening.
2: Right, right. Well, I uh, highly suggest that our listeners check out uh, the interview uh, with Lisa Monaco from uh, the Department of Justice. Again, that's over on the Cybersecurity 202, which is authored by Tim Starks. Tim, thanks so much for joining us. Let's work together to stay ahead of emerging threats and secure your mission anywhere. Learn more at aka.ms fedcyber. That's aka.ms slash fed cyber. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Ivan. Our mixer is Trey Hester with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick. Our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow.